Welcome, and if you're new, um, special welcome to you. A great day to come and and worship and uh, be together as a body of Christ. But today, uh, we begin a new series, and it's a section of Scripture that I suspect that many of you have read over and over again, and undoubtedly and you've heard it preached on, and it's the Sermon on the Mount. And it comes from Matthew 5, and it goes through Matthew 7, and some have labeled this the most important or the greatest sermon that Jesus ever taught. And when you read it, and you start to just dig in, you, you realize the, the breadth and the depth of what he taught as he sat on that hillside. Matter of fact, I'm going to throw some of the topics, look at some of the things that he covers in, in these short chapters, and to put those on the screen there, uh, we're going to get those up, there we go, um, there, the Beatitudes, we're going to jump into here a little bit today and next week, uh, speaking to the characters of our heart, uh, salt and light, how do we, how will we be salt and light in this world, false righteousness, murder, anger, Adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, how to deal with enemies, charitable deeds, prayer, fasting, materialism, anxiety, judging others, and even that golden rule of do unto others as they do unto you. All of these are contained in that sermon. But today we just got to set the stage for it and a little bit of introduction. And I just want to remind you that when you walk through Scripture like this, there are many different types of literature. There's genres of literature that we need to take into account. And this is just kind of a quick lesson or just a minute to remind you that we got to be very careful at times when it comes to literalism. But matter of fact, just the, the genre of how they kind of label this sermon, I'll put it on the screen. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, I said it this way. The literary style of the Sermon on the Mount, it's a form of wisdom literature compared to a little bit like the Proverbs, and there's other pieces, other kinds as well. There's lots of parallelism in it, and there's vivid contrasts as well in this sermon. And I think we, we forget that the average person back there did not have a Bible, Matter of fact, if the local temples, the synagogues had a scroll, one scroll, they were often fortunate. And so learning back there was a little bit different, and they didn't have a, the written word so much. And when teachers taught, they used much more imagery. And when you think of the different forms and poetry, and someday I should probably write a poem for you, but I couldn't get it to rhyme, so I won't do that. But, but I think we forget just how complex the literature was back then. But the warning, let me throw you a warning in terms of we've got to be careful, and I want to throw a verse up on the screen. Matthew 5.29, look at how it reads here. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. See, this is a vivid image that he teaches here. Pluck the eye out. Some version says you pluck the eye out. Well, is he talking literally there? The next verse, I don't have it on the screen, is cut off your hand. Okay. Now, I guess there's been times where people have taken that literally and actually have done that. 
But we just have to be aware of, of the style of literature as he digs in here and some of those aspects as we look to dig below the surface. But the context of this sermon, uh, on your notes I said it this way, it's in Galilee. Uh, Galilee's above Samaria, a, a little bit of ways, quite a ways from Jerusalem. So they had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. And it's early in his ministry. Now, just to expand that context a bit, there are a number of events that led up to this Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 3, if we, we won't go back there, but he begins his ministry here by being baptized by John the Baptist. And immediately after that, in chapter 4, if you remember, he goes out into the desert, and he's there for 40 days, and he's tempted by Satan. And he comes out of the desert... And he hears that John the Baptist has now been beheaded, arrested at least at this point. And then he moves up into Galilee. And in verse, look at how verse 17 states. This is kind of the first glimpse of his starting point. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, he begins this ministry by proclaiming to repent. The kingdom is, is now starting. And he consequently then gathers a group of young men to follow him. He's going to equip them and train them. For one day, as we look back, we know that he's going to leave this world. And so he's preparing them. But it's here where we got to drill down just a little bit. And just pause because I think here's what we forget. We assume that, that this was the point as he starts his ministry that he was going to go, ah, I'm going to the cross. And that's the reason why I'm here. I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and then my mission is done. But here's where you got to pause. There was more to his mission than just the cross. And I think we forget that. It was more than just hanging there and dying for our sins. Let me show you again Matthew 4.23, another text here. And look how it reads right before chapter 5. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, I underlined a phrase there. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. Now, when we look at that word gospel, I understand this is really not pointing to the cross here. This gospel, literally, gospel means good news. So he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And this preaching of the kingdom is woven through his entire ministry until he dies. This concept of the kingdom... Matter of fact, was very important to him. Matter of fact, even the writers that recorded the words of Jesus. In the Gospels alone, there are over a hundred different times 
that the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, that phrase, by the way, is interchangeable. But over a hundred times in just those four, and it's scattered throughout the rest of the New Testament. So one of the objectives of Jesus beyond the cross, on your sermon notes, I said it this way, is to proclaim the kingdom of God. See, we need to get this because Matthew is introducing this purpose of Christ into this sermon to to proclaim and explain the kingdom of God. Now, if you were to dig farther, actually, in the book of Matthew, and we don't have time to do that here, but you would find that Matthew recorded five sermons of Jesus. And every sermon was critical in understanding the kingdom of God. They were all interwoven into his sermons. So, folks, the challenge for us is we live in 2014. If Jesus said the kingdom of God is important, and it was important for him, should not that make it important to us? That's where we need to understand the kingdom of God, and we have to do this as we dig into the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me just, for for more notes here, just put this up on the screen for you, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, just to kind of add a little bit to it. And it's really functionally this, to give understanding and to move us to repent and to live for the kingdom of God. And let me say it in the form of an application. Christ has set us free, unleashed us, to be participants within the kingdom of God. And what you will find, and what he's going after, see, is this. People can become religious. And they can claim even to be a follower of Christ. And they are nowhere even close to living within the kingdom of God. So what is this kingdom of God or kingdom of of heaven? What is it about? Now here's where some come along and say, well, obviously the kingdom is the church. And you go, no, that's really not accurate at all. See, the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom creates the church. The church witnesses to the kingdom. The church is an instrument of the kingdom. But let me push it even farther in this introduction. I want to put the first three verses on the screen from Matthew 5, from that sermon. Look how it starts. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and there was other people, obviously, that gathered around, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is this kingdom? And and here's where I think we're at a disadvantage in the United States. That word kingdom has many parts to it. And all of the parts make up the whole. It includes territory. It includes the boundaries of that territory. It includes the people that reside in that territory within those boundaries. It includes the rules and the structures of that kingdom. 
And most important, that word kingdom, when you dissect that word, that first part of that word, a kingdom has a king, which the people follow, which they give honor to. And and see, as this sermon begins, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. And he sits down and he begins to teach the disciples in the crowd. He says, I got the good news of the kingdom. And by the way, we know from the scriptures that the king of this kingdom, well, we could say king, kingdom of God, but it's very fair to go, this is Christ. Christ is the king. But we have to come to some questions. What is the kingdom like? What kind of a king is he? You know what? Is he a king who cares about us? Or is he a king who holds a whip to us? What are his subjects? Who are they? Who can be a part of the kingdom? Is everybody a part of the kingdom? And what are the things that are important to the king? Is it global warming? He's in control. But look at, as an example, the press at verse 3. Look how he starts it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, from that first beatitude, we find that the subjects, the people within the kingdom have a characteristic. And the characteristic is that they are poor in spirit. Now, we're going to define that more next week as we go beyond the introduction. But let me just put up a statement then on the screen for you. It says this, Jesus is teaching these people and his disciples about the wonder and the goodness of living under the reign of God, or we could put under the reign of Christ there. So when Jesus began his ministry, he proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's begun. And to those that heard that, this actually would have been quite staggering for them. Uh, we hear the kingdom has started, and we have this blank look like, ah, uh, you know, what do you mean? But for them, it would have been important. And you go, why? See, this was more than a hint. They, they got this to some degree. They were hoping for a king to come. They were hoping that a new kingdom would come into play here. That that king would come and it would sweep out those ugly Roman guys. And there would be a new reign that would start. So when they heard the kingdom is starting now, they're looking and go, no more Rome. But what they didn't understand is this that the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming was a spiritual kingdom. And it was more than an earthly realm. And, and even this, when he goes, repent for the kingdom of God is here. I, I think that when he called out repentance there, they would have looked at him and go, why? What does that have to do with a king? But what was Jesus implying here? It was this. You're in the presence of the king now. 
So I understand when he was saying, repent. It was so much more than just feeling bad about sin. It was turning and following the king and putting oneself under authority and working for the king. It's living within the rules and the structures of the kingdom. There's a new identity to that. See, and as he began to preach and teach, I think this would have been a bit repulsive for some of those people. Because they were, some of those Pharisees were getting it. He's claiming to be the king. But here's the challenge, I think, for us. I think many of us may also be repulsed by this sermon when we start digging. Because the challenge is this. If we claim to be a disciple of Christ, we are called to work within the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Uh, I, I came across an illustration this week, and it was um, it, it was an English teacher in Texas A&M. She assigned this Sermon on the Mount as a literary work, an example, and they were supposed to take it and write on it and dissect it. The, the English teacher's name was Virginia Owens, and she ended up writing an article about the response of her class to this Sermon on the Mount as they were examining it. And she went on to say that most of the uh, students at that university were from conservative, middle-class homes. And they were, understand, this is kind of the Bible belt. She assumed that they would know something about the Bible. And by the way, this example comes from 1987. And she ended up beginning to correct these papers And the first paper she picked up, that it began with this. In my opinion, religion is one big hoax. That's how it started the paper, on the reaction of the Sermon on the Mount. And she looked over at the second paper. She put it in front of her and said, it began this way. There's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies to this case. And thinking it was a fluke, she reached for the third paper, And and, and listen how another student started this paper. It's hard to believe something that was written down thousands of years ago, it began. In the Bible, Adam and Eve were the first two people, and if they were then, where did black people come from? And also, the Bible says nothing about dinosaurs, and I think God would have mentioned them. That was a reaction to the Sermon on the Mount. And she discovered this trend And then she wrote this in the article. Why were these students so angry at what they had read and so blithe in their dismissal of it? My own introduction to the Sermon on the Mount as a child in Sunday school has been accompanied by a pastoral poster illustrations of Jesus sitting like a patient Mr. Rogers on a green hillside surrounded by eager pink children. It was never occurred to me either to be angry or to turn away from such a scene. These kids, freshmen, were angry. Let me just read a few more. I don't have it on the screen for you. The stuff the church preaches is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. Another student, I did not like this essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and it made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Another, things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. 
That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. See, many people believe that this another one sermon should be taken literally. I believe, on the other hand, that because the scriptures have been interpreted from so many different languages, we should use them as a guide, not law. Another, in this essay, the author explains the doctrines of an era in the past which cannot be brought into the future in the same context. The essay now cannot be taken the same way it was written. It can be used as a guideline for good manners. Last one. But one young woman admitted that she had drifted away from the church lately and said, no one knows exactly what to believe. If I pondered enough, what can, one can find reasons to prove almost all aspects of religion are false. And she, more than any of her classmates, was offended at the Sermon on the Mount appearing in her textbook, in her assignments. See, the message that Jesus came to, to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Live within the kingdom. It was offensive even to these freshman students. And I think it's offensive to many people of our day. See, even that word repentance has really lost its meaning in our world. You you couple repentance and kingdom. And and understand what it's saying. It's talking about leaving everything to turn and follow the king. That's what he's talking about here. It's following Jesus. I I, I think when we think in our culture and we think of repentance of sin, I, I think the reality is we still want to remain independent. Jesus, forgive me of my sins, but if you don't mind, I'm going to, you know what, I'm just going to stay out from under your authority. I think that's too close to where we're at today. Forgive me, but let me do what I want to do. Let me jump into the text just a little bit for introduction and keep moving here. Look at how it reads. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now here's one of the challenges that I've had as I dig into this and as I begin to teach and preach on this. Do you notice that Jesus starts with a list right up front? And there's this great temptation is to take lists and even the other exhortations in the sermon and create a little moral code book. And then if we do that, somehow follow the moral rules, uh, even, even think of this, be merciful. And we kind of talk ourselves in, you know, I gave $10 to that guy standing on the street. That was merciful. Check that one off. Even the golden rule, which it bugs me that 
Political people always quote this one, and they have no understanding of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But even there, we, we do that. Check. I've tried to do that. But that's the challenge. It, when it becomes a moral rule book, we realize, you know what? We're not measuring up so well. And that's why those freshmen that were doing that assignment, they go, we don't really like this stuff, these rules. See, the challenge for me, there's all different kinds of approaches to this sermon, even how it's taught. And I think for some, and even when I've heard it in the past, they look at it as four chapters of producing guilt. And it kind of goes this way. Here's the standard. Look how miserably you failed. Pull your act and get your act together. And you go, no. That's not how we need to approach that. But we do have to get this, is that this teaching is about the kingdom, living within the kingdom, and most of all, this is about the king in the kingdom. It's relating to the king. So to focus on the kingdom and understand it, we also must focus on the king of kings. See, as Matthew start this process, the king is sitting in front of them. And he kind of was hinting at that he, he's the king. But just think of this picture. He sits down on this hill. And, and, and by the way, sitting down there was actually a sign of authority. We kind of do it the opposite in churches today. We think of standing up as more authoritative, and it was sitting down as actually an act of authority. But imagine that you're one there, and they're gathering around close to you, and that Jesus, you're kind of up front. You get the best seats up front. And just imagine that you're close, and you've seen him even work some miracles already. But just think of sitting there on that mountain and all of a sudden he, he, he turns and he begins to scan the crowd and he goes, Tom, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he turns and he looks at Kevin. And he said, Kevin, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And, and he turns and he looks at another one and he gazes in their eyes and, hey, hey, Rick, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. See, what is he beginning to do here? He's announcing that the people of the kingdom are blessed. And, and sitting in the front row close to Jesus actually feels pretty good. Because that word blessing, even think of what it means, it implies that one is God is favoring. God's doing something for it. It's actually a passive term. But it's to be favored and honored by God. But here as we begin to just drill down just a little bit, when you start looking even at this first list, we realize that Jesus is actually saying the unexpected. See, the qualities of the blessed on Jesus' list are all things that we really don't consider blessings when you look at that list. And my hunch is that they would have been feeling, oh, I wonder where real blessings come in. Think for us today, when you, when you say, what does it mean to be blessed today? 
2014, oh Lord, I'm so blessed. My cupboard is filled with food. Uh, Lord, I'm so blessed that I have a job. Thank you, Jesus. Oh Lord, I'm blessed because I have my health. Praise God. Oh Lord, I'm blessed with a car and a nice house and good kids that I feel so safe and secure. And now I'm blessed. I have a good marriage. Oh, I'm so blessed. But you catch this on the list that I just said. None of these blessings are talked about as blessings. None of them. Aren't some of the things even that I just stated, the things that we have in mind when we pray for ourselves, even our children? God, bless my children so that they'd be successful. God, I'm so blessed because they don't have to suffer. Father, bless them with great friends so that they don't, aren't pulled down evil paths and they have to fight temptation. Isn't that where we go sometimes? But look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, and if he starts saying that at that point, if I was sitting in the front row, you know what I would probably start to do? Let's move back a little bit so he doesn't make eye contact with me. Telling me I need to be persecuted. See, see this list is, even to start here, it would have been mind-blowing. Because the qualities that he includes here are actually what we would consider as not being blessed. The list of these blessings is filled with things that are, are actually lacking. See, we tend to think of one as blessed as being full, complete, overflowing. And Jesus says that those who are living, moving toward the kingdom of God are empty, incomplete, and lacking. They're mourning. They're meek. They're being persecuted. I came across this quote. Let me put it on the screen. We can no longer decide who is blessed and who is not by whether they are rich and successful. See, in this sermon... Jesus, one of the things he's going to do is confront fake religion. And he's going to call people into living in the kingdom of God. But let me give you an application, a parenting application. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, we look at our children and we don't want them to be persecuted. That's an anti-blessing, God. So we pray to protect them. Don't let evil come into their path. We shelter them from the world thinking that we're blessing them. We keep them away from all kinds of people thinking that that's going to be bless them. But the kingdom doesn't work like we work. And to say it this way, keeping them, keeping your kids from being persecuted is actually keeping them from a blessing. See how it flips everything here of what Jesus is doing. It keeps them from having to live in the kingdom of God. It's keeping them from having to trust the king of the kingdom with their own lives. I look at this Christian woman who's being 
held right now. We're trying to get a release. Folks, she is fully engaged in the kingdom of God. Fully. I look back as a parent and I realize how much of my parenting was about fear. And fear always leads to control. And then we justify control and we convince ourselves that that's really godly parenting. And so flat, so often it was just flat out fear. So we work so hard that our children don't have to go through hard times. And it was so relevant even for me this week. I had to deal with this text. I got adult kids. And it came to this verse and it said, Blessed are those who mourn even with my children. Uh, my daughter called Deanna and I and uh, she informed us she was getting some tests, some medical tests run. There were some levels that came at, back wrong. And she told us she doctor diagnosed a medical condition that's not curable and that the likelihood within the next 10 years she has to have a liver transplant. And there's really no hope at this point for her. And it was like God was putting it on a platter for me and said, Ken, okay, you're mourning. And I was crying and Deanna was discouraged. And, and you go, Ken, are you willing to live within the kingdom of God at this point? See, he was inviting me to a place that was completely different. And as I look at my daughter having to go through this, she's only 34 years old, and you look, you go, liver transplant? Kingdom of God? The mourning that she's going through even right now? God is going to be inviting her to live in the kingdom. She knows him as Lord and Savior. But she has to go to a place that's vastly different than most people are willing to go. We want safety. We want comfort. And we want easy. And to say it harshly, maybe, that's fake religion. See, it's keeping us from having to live within the kingdom. It's keeping us from having to walk by faith and learning what it means to trust God when there's no answers. And, and if you're a parent and even an older one like myself, are we modeling living within the kingdom of God? See, this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of Christ is living differently. And it needs to turn our lives upside down in how we live today. And let me just end with this. Our king, I look at these beatitudes, he wants to bless us. But with these things, he invites us to live, and then he goes, I want to bless you as you walk in this world. And Kenna, and everyone that claims Christ, he goes, I want you to live for the kingdom, for something greater. He wants to move from religion to a place that's about real faith, real, real religion.
This is about the kingdom and the king. Let's stand and pray.